Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I think both parliaments understand the importance of this agreement and, and that if Australia and the United Kingdom can't sign a free trade agreement together, well, who can we sign them with? Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy. And before we roll into today's episode, I just want to let you know that we, being The Guardian, are running a survey to find out what you think of our Guardian podcasts and what new podcasts you would like us to make. So if you've got thoughts on this question, head along to theguardian.com forward slash pod survey. If you have a few minutes to help us out, we'd be really grateful. Now, with me in the pod cave, as we call it, <laughs> is, it a, is a pod cave. It is, yes, is a slightly nervous looking uh, <laughs> Minister for Trade, Tourism and Investment. That is right, Dan, isn't that, it? That, that, is, that is right. And these walls are quite. Yes, uh, and they, they can feel as though they close in. Anyway, they do a bit. We, yeah, yeah, it's all right. You're perfectly safe, I promise. Anyway, Dan is with me, Dan T, and Minister for Trade, Tourism and Investment for reasons that, uh, that are probably obvious to most listeners. We've had. Uh, a very significant development this week, which we're going to unpack during this conversation, and that is that we have agreed in principle to have a bilateral trade deal with the United Kingdom. Now, Dan, I just want to start there because not everybody listening to this podcast will be absolutely au fait with the history of trade relations between Australia and the UK. So without giving me the absolute box and dice. Let's but let's start there. So what why why are we doing this and what is the context sitting behind it? So the the context sitting behind this, Catherine, can I just say it's great to be with you in the in the podcast cave. <laughs> the context behind this is Leading up to 1970-71, Australia and Britain had a very close economic partnership, uh, traded freely amongst each other. And then at around that time, Britain decided that it would move to join the common market, uh, the European common market. And doing that meant that it shut itself off from Australia, particularly Australian agriculture. And really, for Australian agriculture, getting access to the United Kingdom and the European market since then has been very, very difficult. Now, all that changed again, of course, when the United Kingdom decided to exit the European Union through Brexit. So that's how we've come to where we are. Very neatly summarised. Okay. So, and from the Australian perspective, obviously, when the UK joined the common market, that had a really profound impact. 
impact on our economy. We we had to sort of change direction quite massively, and and that's been anyway. That's just I think it's just an interesting context for people to understand in both countries that this is this is what sits behind the agreement. Now, there is just one really interesting point there. Um, Doug Anthony, who was the then Trade Minister, went to the United Kingdom to try and get them to change their mind mm. and to keep Australia and in part New Zealand part of, of, of the bigger picture. Obviously got a no. When he came back to Australia, he said, that's in the past now, let's look to the future. And then we embarked on really engaging with the Indo-Pacific. Mm, mm. Incredible leadership at that time, not to be bitter, not to sort of just to say, right, that's in the past, let's look to the future yeah. and uh, worth just mentioning. Yeah, well, that's, that's uh, well, yeah, and you, you, you're right to spell that out. I sort of did that in shorthand. It's sort of, it put Australia on the path, uh, sort of being shunned by Britain, mm. put Australia on the path to well the, the modern economy and the, and the linkages that we have in the region mm. as opposed to the old empire bizo absolutely anyway, cheerio to everyone listening <laughs> in london anyway so that's the context so when was the decision taken to sign up i ask you that because there was all this stagecraft ahead of time now i'm sure it felt like more than stagecraft to the guy in the room but you know there, there's that ritualistic trade stuff right and anyway I'll, i will ask you about liz truss and the uncomfortable chair because i just can't wrap my mind around that but let's the straightforward question is when did we decide yes we're going to do this so we decided that we would try and negotiate a free trade agreement July 1 last year. Yeah. And we agreed in principle, literally... Five uh, minutes the, before yeah, they appeared the, the in me- the, court, yes. the, the meeting, yeah. the two PMs had breakfast. They were still dotting I's and crossing right. T's at the breakfast. Yeah. Uh, the breakfast concluded. Right. Uh, and they literally walked into the courtyard well, and made the announcement. That's why I'm asking, because that's how it felt, right? Mm. So it's from again from the Australian perspective it was it was the evening. There we were watching Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison on our televisions in Australia, in that whatever that lovely rose garden area oh, beautiful. is, well, yeah. presumably somewhere at number ten or in the Parliament or somewhere. Anyway, out they barrel. Yes, we've done it. And and look, I sat in Australia for about two hours after that with no detail. Like, what the hell have we actually agreed here? And so that's why I was interested to know. So it was it genuinely was right down to the last five minutes. Now, uh, there's still not. Look, we've got a we've got a broad set of parameters yep. about what's been agreed, and we'll bore into a couple of the issues in a tick. But when are we likely to see more detail? Because there are a range of stakeholders now out there saying, "Where's the text?" Yeah. So we've got the agreement in principle, which is what myself and Liz agreed we would aim for when the two Two prime ministers met. So that's really the framework of the agreement, which all going well will be signed late October, early mm-hmm. November. Now, what we have to do is take the agreement in principle and a lot of work that's been done behind the scenes already on the chap on chapters to the actual agreement. Right. Yeah. But in the end, we're talking about a 600, 700 page document, mm-hmm. which goes into incredible detail of which we're probably oh, 50 or 60% through. So what we have to do now is take 
take the framework that's been agreed and really put that into legal text of about 600, 650 mm. pages. So there is still a lot of work to be done, but the core issues have been agreed and that will make it a lot easier as we work through to get the final document mm-hmm. done. Okay. Unions, unsurprisingly, are already on the warpath about what's been agreed in terms of the people movement provisions. That that shouldn't surprise because unions have been in that territory in terms of trade agreements for, well, best part of 10 years now, really. So I want to understand this a bit better myself. With labour market testing, what have we agreed so what what we've agreed is very similar to what we've agreed in previous free trade agreements. That is that there is not a need for labour market testing uh, for the specific visas. So usually the visa classes which are put in places are either where there is workforce shortages, so for instance agriculture, agribusiness, or things like the working holiday maker visa, which has been extended. For, so that's for young Brits, young Australians, they now can go and work for three years in either country yes. uh, up to the age of 35. Now, we don't do labour market testing for those types of arrangements because often people will holiday, they'll then work, holiday and then work and they'll move around. But usually they're always filling places where there are workforce shortages. So a young British person usually will come to Australia, will work in, a, say, a pub on Magnetic yeah, Island off of Townsville. Yeah. Uh, then they might go to somewhere in regional or rural Australia and they might mm, pick fruit, fruit or, or that, that type yeah. of thing. So that's the type of thing they do. And it actually works very well for our economy because all these seasonal jobs we need filling. So, and we've never really had labour market testing for them. And the other areas are areas which where traditionally you don't have labour market testing. And it's what we've done in previous free trade agreements. So look, I, I look forward to sitting down with, with the unions and, and sort of talking them through it so they mm. understand what we're, they're doing. Whether they'll yeah. Uh, sort of in the end ultimately come on board, that, that'll be up to them. But there's nothing really unusual that we've done. But it, Well, a couple of things. Is it complete reciprocity? So what has been agreed by us has also been agreed by the Brits. That's, is it complete reciprocity? Well, it's very difficult to have complete reciprocity when you're lining up uh, different immigration systems in different countries. But what we've agreed is as far as practical to have reciprocity between the two countries over these things. So there is an agreement that they, within their system, will put their visas in place that, that we and we'll do it here, mm. uh, and, and the visas will be more or less similar. Uh, it won't be complete reciprocity because it's just a bit difficult given that you're dealing with two very different immigration okay, systems. But we've, we've dealt with um, the backpacker example. I mean, I, I cleaned toilets in a Scottish youth hostel many years ago. Like, we all know how those arrangements work work, right? Australians and Brits absolutely understand that. But like, I don't know, like if if I were an employer and I wanted to bring in a bunch of British electricians, say, like, yes, I, I don't yeah, know, I've yeah, got yeah, a yes. massive housing project I'm doing or something, and I want to bring in a bunch of British electricians because they'll work cheaper than work for work for less than locals. I mean, I know how hypothetical this yeah, is, yes, yes, Dan. Yeah. We've just got to work, walk yeah, yeah, down yeah, the road, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, can, could I do that without labour market testing? Well, so it, it, 
dep- it would very much depend on um, the skills that have been identified by both countries where there are the shortages right. that we would enable people to come in. And then even though that labour market testing goes, you still have to meet the employment requirements in, in each other's country. So, mm-hmm. for instance, I, I couldn't be bringing in UK plumbers or electricians and say I'm going to pay them 50% less than what the going rate was I- I- in Australia. So that that just couldn't be done. Oh, well, but, well, well it, it, it periodically is done, but it's not lawful to not, do it. Yeah, that, yes. that's right. It's, yes. the, it's not lawful yes. So and, and would remain illegal for, for you to do that. But the the areas that we're really looking at are those areas of real workforce shortage. So, for instance, probably a better example would be a shearer here, and it might even be a New Zealand shearer mm-hmm. who, who works here in our shearing season for four or five months of the year and then might head over and work in the UK for four or five months a mm. year. Now, obviously, they get paid the going rate per sheep, etc. But that's that that sort of is, is one of the things that we're really looking to do is to see whether there is complementarities, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to the agricultural workforce in the UK and our agricultural workforce. Now, seasonally, it may or may not work, but they've got there's a lot of fruit picking that goes on mm. in parts of, of the United Kingdom, so there might be opportunities for people to work in both countries fruit picking mm. and all that will be will be worked through mm. over the coming months. Not a doubt because that agricultural the agricultural workforce is a point of sensitivity here uh, and we'll get to the British farm lobby's sensitivities in a tick but David Littleproud sort of burst through the door with his ASEAN visa uh, on the <laughs> We're both laughing on the on the on the day or the day after the uh, in principle agreement had been reached, because of course the concern is there's a big backpacker workforce or it, when the borders open in in Australia bringing the fruit and all that sort of stuff. Brits, oops, they're not here anymore. Oops, bit of a problem. So now there's we have this ASEAN visa to bring in an alternate labour force, but the NFF saying, oh come on guys, look we've been here for the last. 3,000 3, centuries. I mean, you know, how are we actually going to resolve this issue? Yeah, yeah no, um, and, and look, it's a very good question of the NFF. And in my view, this is why this agreement is so important because for the first time we have agreed to establish a, an agricultural and agribusiness visa. So this is this is a landmark in that regard. Up until then, we, we hadn't had that agriculture and agribusiness visa. Right. So we've done that uh, in this free trade agreement. And I think it'll, you know, people will look back and see uh, this has been an incredibly important element of this broader free trade agreement. What the government has also committed to is look to expand that visa to see where we can expand it to other countries, which will also help with our our labour workforce shortages in in the agricultural sector. Mm -hmm. And it, it is important because there are... 8,000 British people who come and on the working holiday maker and for 88 days do work yes. in Australian agriculture. But my view is that this new visa is a real advancement on that for two reasons. One, it means that young Brits now can come and if they want to work in agriculture, they can. If they want to pour beers, they can. Yeah. If they want to scrub make cups of coffee, yeah, well, yep. scrub toilets in a Scottish youth hostel, <laughs> that just uh, sort of plays with my mind a bit, Catherine. It's probably too much information. <laughs> yeah, too much information. Yes. Um, so they, they've got the choice of how to do it. And young Australians also have the choice of what they work in, uh, in, 
in the United Kingdom, but also we've then got the designated ag visa mm-hmm. for those people who really do really want to work it. in yeah. those areas, they can, and, and we can facilitate that. So I, I think it's a meaningful change and a really, really good one, especially for us here in Australia, because this issue has been front and centre for regional and rural Australia for, for quite a period of time. Mm-hmm. And I spoke with Fiona Simpson, the head of the NFF, and she's very keen to work with the government to make sure we, oh, we yeah. get this right. She's absolutely and, dropped dead. Yeah. Yes. And we will do that because because of the importance. As you know, if we want to enjoy our our lovely glass of red wine with a nice steak, we actually need people to pick the grapes and mm. uh, and, and also to work in the abattoirs. So that's, yeah. that's why it'll be crucial. Yeah. Okay. Now, British Farm Lobby, I sort of set that up slightly. There, there's been much commentary from the, it's the National Farmers Union in the UK, isn't it? Yes, apologies again to folks in the UK who are listening if I've buggered that up. National Farmers Union, Union I believe. There's been uh, a lot of commentary from them about different standards that exist because we, we're pivoting now in the conversation if it's not clear now to uh, the goods we trade. So basically the, the, the Farmers Union in the UK has, has said there are quite different standards in uh, animal welfare and pesticides and various things between the two countries. I confess I knew nothing about this until I collided with this debate. So I'm going to ask the idiot's question. What, what are the differences? So first things first... In Australia, we, we have world-class standards, world-class animal welfare standards, and it, we're internationally recognised as having world-class animal welfare standards. In the United Kingdom, they also have world-class animal welfare standards and internally, internationally recognised as such. The differences are to do with climatic and seasonal differences, which then mean that you, you will put in place different arrangements depending on the circumstances of, of which you're producing your um, your, your meat, your beef, your sugar, your, your dairy, etc. And so what we've what we've done is we've agreed as part of this agreement to to have a chapter on on animal welfare. There'll be a chapter on the environment where we'll work together and really begin to grow and understand how we do things our way, given given the, our circumstances and how in the you. you United Kingdom, they do things their way. But they've been talking about specific things like antibiotics in in meat and and yeah, this this issue about pesticides that that are okay in Australia but not in the UK. And I get, look, you you resolve that in the at the granular level in chapters, you know, where where different mm. different expectations are yeah. quantified and etc. Yeah. And and I think you I think you've said, look, if you know, if they don't like a particular methodology in the way that Australian meat is produced, we just don't send it to that market, and which is sort of the logical thing. But it's uh, anyway. So, do you think that that will be those chapters that you flagged that that will be sufficient? Because obviously, there's been quite a lot of pr- political pressure at the UK end about this stuff. Do you think that will resolve the pressure? Or? I, I, absolutely. And I think the more there is understanding of the way the systems in both countries work, the more people will be comfortable with it. For instance, if you use, there's the example of, of hormone-free beef. Yes. Now, we have been sending hormone-free beef to the European Union 
and to the United Kingdom for many years now. And uh, so we understand and know that one of the requirements will be that, that we'll have to send hormone-free beef to the United Kingdom. And, and that's, just a, that's just a condition that, w- that we will meet. So all those types of, of arrangements will be, will be worked through. We've had very good discussions in, in this area. And one of the things that is becoming more and more clear that Australia and the United Kingdom will be able to work together on these issues and cooperate on these issues because in the end, British farmers and Australian farmers want to make sure that there's the right regulation but not too much regulation. One of the things that the National Farmers Union in the UK has been saying is what's happening to them is they're getting loaded up with more and more regulation, which in many ways is unnecessary because they're already world-class in what they're doing. And so I think one of the areas you'll find is that agriculture sectors in both countries will be working together to say to government, we want good regulation, sensible regulation in these areas. We don't want draconian regulation, mm. which makes it hard for us to be able to compete globally. So I, I actually think once we get through the initial argy the initial argy bargy, yes, yes, that's a nice. You've got to say something more diplomatic. I, I was going to say yes, more, but yes. I think you'll find that there's that, that the NFF and the National Farmers Union UK will work very closely together, and they were up until about three or four months ago. And I think once we've got this done, you'll see them working together Ah, very well again. But Because I think the Farmers Union there and obviously the NFF remains a significant lobbying force in Australia. Obviously, the, the, the agreements have to be ratified in both parliaments. Mm. So there's still there's still a round of argy-bargy to go, isn't there? there? There is, although I must say, from when I was in the United Kingdom and just the feeling here, I think both parliaments understand the importance of this agreement and, and that if Australia and the United Kingdom can't sign a free trade agreement together, well, who can we mm. sign them with? So my sense, I've got to say, from when I went to the United Kingdom, I met with the, parla- the Parliamentary Trade Committee in the UK. It, it was one of the, the, the most pleasant hours I've had in my parliamentary career where the banner was terrific. The the chair, I had to leave at one stage because he had a, a U out the back, which was lambing, which had twins, and then he came <laughs> back and continued, uh, continued the meeting. It was, and, and look, they are very keen to come to Australia and uh, have a look at how we produce things here. So my sense of it is without prejudging any of this, I I think both countries understand this is historic, really important for Britain as they strike out from the EU. For us, it's it's a you know it's righting a wrong from 50 years ago. Yes. So I, I just I, I I think that there will be the normal argy bargy, but in the end, uh, I, I think this will be one of the easiest free trade agreements to go through our parliament, and one of the easiest ones to go through famous theirs. Last words. Yes, famous last famous words. Famous last words. They anyway, are. we'll see. I I, I, I don't I, I don't have any fundamental dispute with your logic. It's it makes sense, but just look, every free trade agreement that's gone through this parliament in the last little while has been an absolute down to the wire. God, I hate that cliche, but you know what I mean? It, it really, they're, they're always more difficult than they look. 
in terms yes. of legislating. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. We can have another conversation down the track when we get there. Now, agricultural access, I'm, I'm not saying this in a disdainful fashion because I'll foreground the question by noting that it is extremely difficult for Australia to get agricultural goods sold anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> that is the history of trade in this country, right? So any market access is a win. However, I just note... Obviously, we've got a very leisurely phase in here over 10 or 15 years in terms of these commodities, right? So that is what it is. The question is, we have also agreed, I presume, to a bunch of tariff reductions for British goods to be entering this market, whiskey, Range Rovers, what, you know, I don't know, what else? Anyway, good stuff, yeah. British stuff, right? But are we phasing as well, or have we just given them the immediate tariff cuts? So at this stage, and we're still working through all this, there will be a phase in on UK products as as well, some. But we've got to remember well over, I think, 99% and well over 98% from both countries will come in duty-free immediately. Right. So it's only more sensitive products that So do... like what? Because like a lot of the, the tariffs now are nuisance tariffs, right? They're 5% or less, yeah. right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously it's easy to, well, it isn't easy because this stuff's never easy, but you can bulldoze those and, and yeah. that's not particularly complex. But what are the sensitive areas? So, so for, for us getting goods into the UK, it's obviously agriculture. For yeah. for the UK, yes, one, one example mm. is steel, uh. Uh, where um, there is a so that is that's one of the one of the areas. So, look, do we, we get a lot of British steel? No. So one of the one of the things about these agreements, and Australia is in a very beneficial position in this regard, is that we've done now a lot of free trade agreements. We've yes. opened our economy up. We have a very um, liberalised uh, approach. So for us, we sort of welcome. Free trade, yes. So and despite what goes on in the parliament, parliament, yeah, yeah, and you know, twenty-eight years of uninterrupted economic growth until the pandemic, and look, unemployment's hit five point one percent today. So we've sort of bounded out of this pandemic so far as well, incredibly well. And I put that down to the fact that we are so open because Mm. it means we're productive, Mm. and it it always means you've got to be staying ahead of the game uh, when you're such an open economy. So. For us, there's a willingness and more of an ease to be able to welcome products in duty-free. But you're right, for us to get access to the UK, especially in agriculture, it's much more hard fought. But I think we've reached a really good landing zone on this because one of the real benefits for the UK is that they also begin the process of acceding to a regional trade organisation mm-hmm. here in the Indo-Pacific called the CPTPP. Yes. Yeah. And that would give their farmers access to a very, very large, large yeah, market. So market. so there's a nice balance there. And for us, the, the real balance that we were able to achieve was we, we get immediate access for, for the rice that we export. We get a large quantity of, of sugar that can, can go immediately. Uh, we get... Um, a large quota, uh, so a large quantity when it comes to dairy, and we get good quantities when it comes to lamb and when it comes to beef. And if you look at the history of the free trade agreements that we've negotiated previously, usually one or two 
of those five have, have substantially yeah. missed out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas the yeah. really good thing about this outcome was we were able to get that good access across the board and then including for our wine. So so for regional and rural Australia, this is as good an outcome we've had in any agreement outside of the one we had with New Zealand. The, the, uh, I want to, I'll end with Liz Truss and the chair. <laughs> because I just have to know this story. But just getting back to that point, though, about if we can't do this agreement, we can't do any agreements and the sort of parliamentary passage of it. Obviously, there's stuff to work out on labour mobility and if if the unions are worried, labour will be worried and you... You, you require them as your dancing partners, so... Yeah, although they were, you know, to be fair to the to the Labor Party, they were very positive in their press release they put out yesterday, which I've got to say is welcomed. And, and there has been very good bipartisanship in, in the parliament when it's come to passage of free trade yes, agreements. Yes. There has been, um, you know, occasionally there's a little bit of argy-bargy around a, an issue called ISDS yes. in particular. Well, was, yeah, because, and yeah. this we don't have to worry about that in this agreement. Do that. I'm, I'm quite curious about that yeah. because obviously Labor's platform, I think now, f- f- well, forbids is a stupid word, but you know what I mean. It yes. makes it very difficult for Labor to support support yeah. trade agreements with ISDS clauses. And there was there was speculation, certainly at the British end. I know my colleagues reporting on the agreement in London said, "Oh yeah, there's there's going to be an ISDS in this thing," and but there isn't. So no. what's the story? So what we were able to discuss and, and come to a, a very good conclusion on was that we, we have the two of the best legal systems in the world. So, so there's but, no. But who agreed to drop it? Us or the or, oh, or well, them? We just, or was it mutual? Um, just, just mutual. I mean, it's not something that that we have ever demanded in this free trade agreement. I, I've never really had any sort of demands from the UK side. Once we established that our legal systems, mm. if if the strength of our legal systems doesn't enable each to be able to deal with these issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, in, it's, in it's, such complementary yeah, cultural it, it, absolutely. You know, underpinnings. Pinnings, of, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, that, le- that basic legal framework. Yeah. So, well, we inherited it from them. Well, we so, did. We yes. did. So so we were able to, you know, come to very readily to an agreement. When was that, that agreed, uh, though? Oh, look, I... It's a good question as to when, because nothing's agreed till everything's, everything's agreed. agreed. That but, is the rule but really, of trade, yeah. that um, I think we had a, a good discussion around that when I went to the United Kingdom, and uh, I, it really right. hasn't been much of an right. issue since since, uh, since then. And can I say, uh, and this is my strong view, I think it is a very sensible outcome that we've reached. We do not need. ISDS or investor state dispute settlement. It, it is. It's just not necessary. Just, just in case people don't know what we're talking about, this is this is a clause in trade agreements that uh, that that used to be fine, but now is deeply controversial. The pertinent Australian example is Philip Morris suing the uh, over plain packaging of tobacco products. So this is why some people in the trade space don't like ISDS clauses. I, I actually like legal arrangements that protect sovereign nations and businesses, and I, I don't have an issue with them. Oops. Uh, but they have become really, really controversial and, and, you know, because people who are a lot smarter than me about this stuff, you know, can point to examples where these things are, are controversial. They can start to be used in the wrong way. Yeah. And that's, yeah. uh, that's, that's the problem. And they were always set up as some sort of assurance where there might have been 
some concern about the legal system in the country yes. that you were um, that, that you that were potentially operating, operating in, in yeah. and wanted to have agreement in. The fact is that Australia and the UK. You know, don't need to have those concerns yep. with, about each other's legal systems. Yep. So, I, I think we've got a good outcome. Okay. Now, just in the remaining time we've got, Liz Truss and the chair, go on. What happened? Ah, uh, well. Uh, um, were, were you in the uncomfortable <laughs> no, chair? I've got to say, the chair was very comfortable. <laughs> was um, what sort of a chair was it? Oh, it was a it was a very plush, uh, sort of almost royal chair <laughs> with this nice cushion at the cushiony on the where you where you sit, and then the back was was very cushiony. It was a one of those funny things that happened to you in your. Uh, in your parliamentary career, I was—I remember—I was on the plane flying from Belgium to Paris to do a trade ministers' meeting in, in with the French minister. When I, I was handled the handed the newspaper article saying that I was going to be sitting in an uncomfortable, uncomfortable chair, chair. and um, I've got to admit I smiled to myself and uh, I thought I thought well they're going to have to do a little bit better than an uncomfortable <laughs> chair. I, I don't know, especially for your British lit listeners, whether they know Australian rules football, but I played that. As a as a young man, and was even knocked out on the Australian rules football field. So the idea that an uncomfortable chair yeah. would worry you, I found rather rather quaint. What, what Dad Taylor's is trying to tell you is he's got a very resilient bum. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, but, uh, but moving off that before yes, we both blush. So, um, no, no, Liz, but, and then Liz to her credit, um, very graciously when I landed after being in Paris, flew to uh, flew to the UK. When I landed, she rang me, apologised, and um, said. Did she actually say it? No, she didn't say it. It was um, it was alleged in the newspaper that one of her close advisors said this is what uh, she was going to do. I see. So now it was uh, a degree of separation. There was a degree of separation. Just quickly, in case you missed this, there were reports in London. I think it was the Telegraph. I can't remember where it where it bobbed up, but anyway, there were reports in London that Liz Truss, who is the British Trade Minister, was going to put Dan in a very uncomfortable chair so that he would crumble basically at the first stage of negotiations. That's what we're talking about. So there was a degree of separation. She did didn't actually say it, but it's not uncommon, is it, in these uh, to sort of have this psychodrama in trade negotiations? There's a whole ritual associated with it, right? Big chairs, little chairs, people on platforms, people on you know. It's not it, like it, it. It had the ring of truth about it. It's got to be said because it, even though we're laughing about it, it is not uncommon to have these psychological dominance displays during trade negotiations, right? No, no that's that's true, but the. Idea of a uncomfortable chair being the the type of thing that is going to sort of psychologically destroy your uh, opponent. <laughs> I I found rather quaint. Yes, well, exactly. Well, let's 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 just end on that note. Britain, bring it. If you're gonna if you're gonna try and psych out the Australian trade minister, you've got to bring something more than an, an, a more uncomfortable chair. Anyway, we will wrap. But were there were there any other incidences like that? Although I guess because of COVID. You wouldn't have done as much face to face as you would normally do. In no, a we had those. Like we had those two days, and it's one of the really interesting things because the two days that I had, and then the two meetings that the our prime ministers, or my my prime minister Scott Morrison, had with Boris Johnson, were actually absolutely crucial in getting the deal agreed. And, and it goes to show... Was that anyone in an, in an uncomfortable chair? <laughs> no, 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 no. But it, 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 it really goes to show virtually you can make progress, but when you really get to the pointy ends of things, you do need to be sitting down face to face. And although there might be some argy-bargy, in the end you've ultimately got to trust each other. 
And it's much easier to do that face-to-face than it is doing it virtually. And one of the things that, you know, the lessons for me from this is I think once you've built a good relationship, you can get a lot more done virtually than if you just start from scratch virtually because it's very hard to get that yeah, knowledge and understanding and, and yeah, rapport yeah, of each other. Yeah, so body language um, and cues. Yeah, and so it's yeah. um so but look it, it's it's been fun, it's been tiring. It, it feels like it's been long, even though this will be the shortest agreement at this stage that we've ever done mm. with the country. So mm. the quickest time we've negotiated one. And I, I've got to give a, a shout out to our negotiating team and to the UK negotiating team at the officials level because there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes to put these agreements together and there's been hours of meetings, early mornings, late nights to put the work in behind this and that will continue on for for two or three months well, to come. Until we see this damn text, yeah. which I'm pretty keen to see. Yes, yes. Yeah. Just in case, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just, if that wasn't no. obvious, I'm pretty no, keen I to see No, I can see it. And yeah. everyone will be. And that's, you know, that's the legal text that goes through the parliament. Yes, yeah. So, well, um, but, you know, a, a big shout out to uh, to all those officials because they, they're often the unsung heroes yeah. in, oh, in no, all this. And we're very, we're very well served in this country, uh, certainly in foreign affairs and trade. Just very quickly, I did promise last question, but I forgot the, the elephant in the room, China. Your predecessor, Simon Birmingham, couldn't get a call returned, can you? No. I wrote to my um, Chinese counterpart when I became Trade Minister, which was just before Christmas, and my counterpart was appointed literally within 24 hours that I was. So in January, I wrote him a quite detailed letter just saying that you know, it'd be great to have a very constructive relationship, continue the constructive engagement between our two countries, and setting out all the ways that we could work together and also, you know, on some issues, understanding that we would have to agree to disagree, but uh, yet to have a response to that letter. So do you think it's just all, I mean, this is a whole other podcast, so we'll have to do the very quick potted version. Is it Cold War or bust? I mean, it's been a theme of the week, obviously, the G7 leaders, uh, some comments from our own Prime Minister, the, the whole kind of history of the last six to 12 months in the relationship. Is it Cold War or bust? It certainly feels like it. I hope not. And I don't think it needs to be. I, I think what there needs to be is an understanding that rules-based order has worked, has worked for us very well globally since the Second World War. And I, I think what we need to do is make sure that all countries ha- have an understanding of that. If if you look at, in particular, what's happened to China since it was able to enter the World Trade Organization and get the benefits of the trade liberalization that's flowed over that, it, it, their economy has grown profusely as a result of it. Um, and those rules are, have stood all countries. I mean, we've benefited from the free trade agreement that we've had with with China like they have from that. So my hope is that, that, you know, if we all work together to make sure that everyone understands how important those rules are, uh, that we don't need to um, to, to descend into into a a sort of a a new Cold War. But is there some way of, because of the political signalling now is is very intense globally and domestically, like, what do you do? Is it some officials level rapprochement or...? Look, our officials continue to talk and continue to have, you know, I wouldn't say um, fruitful discussions, but they, they're able to, to continue to have good discussions. So that's, that's happening already. I, I think 
look, who, who knows what ultimately um, will, will lead to a, a change in the circumstances. More often than not, it's events in international relations that, that often uh, leads, lead to changes, and you're never quite sure where, where those, how those events will unfold and, and when they will unfold. The most important thing, and this is the, the message that, you know, from an Australian point of view, you know, I'd end on is that we do want a constructive relationship with China. It's benefited us and our standard of living. It's benefited them in lifting millions out of poverty. And um, it would be great to be able to to have a relationship we are, where we are able to sit down, work through our differences, and where we can't uh, agree to disagree. Agree to disagree. Yeah. Well, as they say in the classics, only time will tell. And, uh, and that noise you may have just heard was uh, was Dad's media advisor saying, "Get the hell out of here," because it's a sitting day, and the minister needs to get to question time. Thank you for your, for your time. We appreciate Pleasure, it. Catherine. Thank you to my uh, executive producer, Miles Martignoni. Thank you also to Hannah Izzard. We'll be back next week. Thank you, Catherine. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.